Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 16 this morning. Last week, we began our study in 1 Thessalonians, talking about how Paul and Silas had been beaten and jailed in Philippi just before coming to Thessalonica. After preaching and establishing a church in Thessalonica, a mob was stirred up against Paul. He was forced to flee the city. Eventually arriving in Athens, he was concerned about how his church in Thessalonica was doing since they had been under continuing persecution. Since Timothy would be the least likely to be recognized by Paul's opponents, Paul sent him back to Thessalonica to see how they were doing. When Timothy returned, he had great news. The Thessalonian church was not only surviving the persecution, it was thriving. So Paul wrote the letter we now know as 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 1, he tells them he thanks God for their labor in spreading the gospel, which had spread all the way to Athens, some 300 miles away, and for their endurance in the midst of severe persecution. In our passage this morning, Paul will address some of the attacks his opponents were apparently making against him. But before we start, let's pray. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would show us how the experiences and testimony of this Thessalonian church 2,000 years ago is still relevant to us today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's start by reading chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Now, this is where the background information I gave you last week comes in. When Paul says in verse 2, that we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. He is talking, of course, about how he and Silas had been arrested, severely beaten, and jailed in Philippi, even though he was a Roman citizen. That would have been enough to make many people give up, but not Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Only a few days later, Paul was preaching again, this time in a synagogue in Thessalonica. In verse 2, Paul says that it was with the help of our God we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. It was through God's help that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had the boldness not to give up and to continue preaching, not only after being treated so badly in Philippi, but also in the face of strong opposition by an organized mob in Thessalonica. In verses 3 through 6, Paul is not just sitting up in his ivory tower wondering what to write next. Many scholars think he is responding to the accusations made against him and Silas. In other words, they were slanderously accused of teaching misinformation and of having impure motives, of trying to trick people, and of using pe uh, people-pleasing flattery to cover up their greed for money. So in verses 3 to 6, Paul responds, for the appeal we make did not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. 
On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. When Timothy got back from his trip to Thessalonica, I suspect that he told Paul what Paul's enemies had been saying about him. Looks like there were at least three main accusations. First, in verse 3, it looks like Paul and Silas were charged with error of spreading misinformation and having impure motives. Paul denies this, saying that his appeal to them did not come from error or impure motives. Second, also in verse 3, Paul was apparently accused of trying to trick people. Paul says they were not trying to trick anyone. Third, in verses 4 to 6, Paul's opponents accused him of using people pleasing and flattery to cover up their greed. Traveling philosophers would often go from town to town, spouting off their ideas for money. Paul's opponents were apparently telling everyone, Paul is just trying to make friends with you so he can fleece you of your money, like all the rest of those traveling philosophers. Paul responds to these accusations in verses 7 to 9 reminding the Thessalonians in verse 7 that he loved them so much he cared for them like a nursing mother cares for her children or like a father deals with his own children in verse 11. Paul and Silas not only shared the gospel with them but their lives as well and they didn't do this for money. Paul says in verse 9, surely you remember brothers and sisters our toil and hardship we work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel to you. Now, Paul is saying that the idea that Paul and that he and Silas were using people-pleasing and flattery to cover up their greed is absurd. On the contrary, Paul and Silas never asked for money. They worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while they preached the gospel to them. Acts chapter 18 tells us that Paul was a tent maker or leather worker by trade. While in Thessalonica, he apparently set up shop to support himself. My guess is that Paul worked all morning uh, making tents, probably taking time off in the heat of the day like most people. But rather than resting, he may, be, may have been teaching like he did in Ephesus. And then he probably came back to tent making in the afternoons and then went back to ministry in the evenings. Whatever his schedule, Paul says he worked night and day so as not to be a burden on them and reminds the Thessalonians that they know that. They saw how much he worked and how he never took money from them. But in Galatians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 9, and 1 Timothy 5, Paul teaches that those who preach and teach the gospel should be paid for their ministry. So why doesn't Paul ask the Thessalonian church for financial support? Paul does not take money from the churches he is planting, like the one in Thessalonica, precisely because he doesn't want anyone to think he's just one of those traveling philosophers who are in it for fame and money. The fact is that we have no evidence that Paul ever took money or regular salary from any church. Although about a dozen years later, he did accept love gifts from the Philippian church while he was in prison. In verse 10, Paul writes, You are witnesses 
and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. In other words, far from being the tricksters with impure motives who use people-pleasing and flattery to cover up their greed, Paul says, you know better. You are witnesses, and so is God. So not only does Paul appeal to the Thessalonians' memory of how he and Silas behaved, he also says in verse 10 that God is his witness. Paul also appealed to God as his witness in verse 5. Now that's like Paul is saying, I swear to God this is true. Unfortunately, many people today will swear to God that something is true while lying through their teeth. But a first century former Pharisee like Paul would likely rather die than swear falsely in the name of God. Far from having selfish, greedy, or impure motives, Paul says in verses 11 and 12, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. Paul never used flattery, but he did use encouragement, as we see in verse 12. The difference is motive. Flattery is used to get something for yourself. Encouragement is used to build others up and to give honor to whom honor is due, as Paul says in his letter to the Romans. In verse 13, Paul then reminds them of how the Thessalonians had received his message. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. A student sometime asked, did Paul know he was writing scripture when he wrote these letters? My answer is that when Paul sat down to write 1 Thessalonians or his other letters, I'm pretty sure he wasn't thinking, you know, I think I'll write some scripture today. But Paul was conscious of the fact that his message, the message that God had entrusted him with, was the very word of God which is what he's saying here. The message he brought to the Thessalonians was not mere human words. It was the word of God. Likewise, that message contained in Paul's letters is also the word of God. Now, let me pursue a little rabbit trail here for a minute. Radical critics often say that the New Testament didn't come into existence until the third 300s AD when powerful Christian bishops got together and selected the books they liked and kicked all the others out. Nonsense. Early Christians believed that Jesus was the very Word of God, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And they knew that the four Gospels, and only those four Gospels, were the accurate and reliable presentation of the words and works of Jesus, who was the Word of God. So, by extension, that made the Gospels the Word of God because they were the accurate record of the words and works of Jesus. So, not long after the last Gospel was written, the Gospels were already being quoted by Christian pastors as the Word of God. The Apostles and early Christians were also convinced that Jesus had personally sent Paul out and that his message was authorized by Jesus himself. So they accepted Paul's letters as the Word of God also. And as we just saw, Paul was also conscious that his message was the Word of God. 
In fact, the Gospels and Paul's letters were treated as the Word of God as early as the first century AD. First Peter and First John were also considered to be the Word of God because they were written by apostles, those specifically sent out by Jesus. The same is true of James and Jude, who were half-brothers of Jesus. The fact is that the vast majority of the New Testament books were unanimously being quoted as the Word of God or Scripture for more than 200 years before that church council ever met. In fact, our New Testament was even called the New Testament 200 years before that council. When that church council met in the 300s, there were still a few books that a small group of churches wondered about, like the tiny book of 2 Peter or, or 2 and 3 John in Revelation. In the end, the churches agreed that these were Scripture too. But the idea that those bishops just made up the New Testament in the 300s AD is absolute nonsense, and the critics themselves know better. Anyway, in verses 14 to 16, Paul then talks about the consequences that occurred after the Thessalonians accepted the gospel. Spoiler alert, it was not health, wealth, and prosperity. Starting in verse 14, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. And in this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at the last. So just as the Jewish Christian churches in Judea suffered persecution from fellow Jews, Paul says the Thessalonians suffered persecution from their fellow Thessalonians. Paul then makes some very serious accusations about the Jews. He says the Jews in Judea killed Jesus. They killed the prophets. They forced Christians out. And they're hostile to everyone, probably meaning to all Christians, in their effort to keep them from spreading the gospel to Gentiles. That brings me to my first observation and lesson this morning. Passages like this are understandably very offensive to Jewish people, especially in our time, because of the Holocaust and because of the very long and horrible history of persecution that Jews have experienced at the hands of professing Christians. Some of those persecutors of Jews have used passages like this to justify their persecution of Jews. I think Paul would have been appalled. He would have been horrified at the way Jews have been treated in the name of Christ. I say that because in Romans 9, Paul writes, For I could wish that my, I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul is saying that if it were possible, he would spend eternity in hell if that could somehow save his fellow Jews. This is not someone who hates Jews. In fact, the depth of Paul's love is hard to imagine. So why is Paul so harsh on his fellow Jews in verses 14 to 16? Well, one answer is that Paul is writing in a long line of Jewish prophets who have a history of calling out the sin of their fellow Jewish countrymen 
for the purpose of calling them to repentance. For example, the prophet Isaiah calls the people of Judah an offspring of evildoers, a sinful nation who are laden with iniquity. He even calls Jerusalem that city has become a horror. Jeremiah accuses both Israel and Judah of being foolish and senseless people who have stubborn and rebellious hearts. Ezekiel, God calls Israel rebellious, obstinate, stubborn, and wicked. Other prophets said similar things. These prophets were all Jews. They didn't hate their fellow Jews. The prophets were calling out the sin of their nation and calling them to repentance. And Paul was just doing the same thing as the other prophets had done. So to use Paul's words as an excuse to persecute Jews, as some professing Christians have done, is twisting and perverting the Bible. And as a quick side note, we need more prophetic voices among pastors today who will call out the sin of our nation. Now we also need to remember that not all Jews oppose Jesus or the apostles. The 5,000 people who accepted Christ on Pentecost were undoubtedly all or almost all Jews. For the first dozen years or so after Jesus, all of the earliest churches were make up, made up almost entirely of Jewish Christians. John the Baptist, Jesus, and the apostles were also all Jewish. So for Christians to be anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic is absurd. But on the other hand, Paul was not going to whitewash history for the sake of getting along. The historical fact is that it was the Jewish leadership with the approval of many Jewish people who orchestrated the death of Jesus. That's why Paul says in verse 15, they killed the Lord Jesus. And the fact is that some of the prophets were killed by their own Jewish countrymen, which is why Paul says they killed the prophets. And it is also true that according to Acts chapter 8, Jewish persecution against Christians in Judea became so intense that Christians had to flee for their lives which is one reason Paul says they drove us out. And even after Paul's time, a significant amount of persecution of Christians came at the hands of Jews. But the sad fact is that once Christians gained power, they often used that power to retaliate against Jews, contrary to the specific command of Jesus to love even our enemies. So my first observation or lesson this morning is that anti-Semitism in all its forms, whether coming from groups like the KKK or the BLM or from the BDS movement, which stands for Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Against Israel Movement, which is supported by many student groups and apostate churches, all forms of Jew hatred and anti-Semitism are sinful to the core and Christians should have no part of it. Generally speaking, Jews are afraid of Christians because for hundreds of years, professing Christians have persecuted Jews. But the Orthodox Jewish talk show host, Dennis Prager, tells his Jewish audiences that evangelical Christians today are the best friends Jews have in this world. And I think that is as it should be. Second, We should not be surprised when people attribute false motives and make false accusations against Christians. 
That's what Paul's opponents were doing against Paul in Thessalonica. In the Gospel of John, Jesus himself warned that the world would hate us. This hatred will come not only from the secular world or from militant atheists, but even from apostate churches like those that protested Franklin Graham's God Loves You tour. This is hard for us older people to wrap our minds around because for most of our lives, even non-Christians generally respected the church and Christian leaders like Billy Graham. Sadly, those days are gone. We've moved from a Judeo-Christian culture to a post-Christian culture and are now beginning an anti-Christian culture. Paul defended himself against the lies and false charges made against him. And we should too. But Paul never went on the offensive with violence. And neither should we. My final observation has to do with the nature of the church. Paul reminds the church that he cared for them like a nursing mother cares for her children. In chapter 1, Paul commended his church for being imitators of him. So in other words, this is not just a model for how pastors should love their congregation. It is a model for how all of us should love and care for each other. Churches should not just be a place where we show up on Sunday morning as spectators to get our weekly religious obligation out of the way. Churches should be places where we get to know each other, mutually encourage and pray for and care for each other. That's why the fellowship time before and after church is important. That's why the prayer list and the midweek update is important. That's why the potlucks or barbecues are important. That's one reason why Sunday school and the midweek Bible studies are important. The farther we move into an anti-Christian culture, the more we need each other for mutual support. And I think you're good at that mutual support. But as Paul might say, let's do so more and more. Let's pray. Lord, I think one of the strengths of our church is the care and concern we have for each other. We pray that through the help of your Holy Spirit, we could get even better and better at that. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.